It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 N. 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 Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Criterion Project, the podcast where we talk about movies in the Criterion channel and or collection. I am Conrado Falco, and I am joined here, as always, by the great Rachel Wagner. Rachel, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Please forgive my voice. I sound more sick than I am. I've just got a cold. I don't have COVID. I've tested twice. It's not COVID. But I I uh, have a, I guess, sexy, sick voice today, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, today we are talking about the movie Late Spring, and we have a couple of very exciting guests with us. It's the second time ever that we have two guests in one episode, Rachel. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, this is really fun. <laughs> so we have with us the hosts of a podcast called There's Sometimes a Buggy, which is a show about mostly about classic Hollywood, although there are some other movies covered there, mostly classic film. And it's a podcast that I love, but I'm going to let our guests talk a little bit more about that. Please welcome to the show, Dave Fiore and Elise Moore. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Hi there. (laughs) Hello. Well, thanks very much for inviting us. We're delighted to be here. Our podcast uh, as you said it's true we definitely focus a lot on 30s and 40s films we have a sort of rotating focus on movies from each studio each of the major studios on a yearly basis throughout the 1930 to 1948 period and we do a lot of other special subjects Uh, we've covered uh, all of the uh, films that we could watch with subtitles of Setsuko Hara, for instance, like we do um, spotlights on on actors, mm-hmm. which we call actors. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. chose the term classic because it's kind of amorphous and ambiguous. So anything we want to cover, we can just decide it's a classic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think people who listen to this show will probably enjoy There's Sometimes a Buggy, especially if you're a fan of classic Hollywood films. I have to say, a lot of the films you cover on the show, I have never heard of and certainly haven't watched before. So it's a great excuse to catch up with stuff that I wouldn't have watched otherwise. It's kind of the Disney model. They, they All their films are, are their uh, animated classics. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the whole canon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we get into the movie at hand, we'll go around as we do, talk about something we've seen recently that we want to either recommend or just have a couple thoughts on. So, um, Rachel, would you like to kick us off? Is there something you've seen recently? Yeah, I have a couple things. Uh, one interesting thing is I am covering Greece for Teen Movie Month. Uh, it'll be, uh, they, I think, air the same. My review will air the same day as, as this will post or... Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. or maybe the week after, I'm not sure. But anyway, my review for Family Movie Night uh, will be for Greece coming up. And I had the opportunity to go to the production, go to a, a stage production of it, and then also watch the movie. And the the compare contrast was pretty interesting uh, to see what they uh, what they took out, what they added. Uh, different things to the movie. So I'll be talking about that in my review. So that Mm -hmm. was interesting. Another small film that I really enjoyed that I recommend is the Phantom of the open. Uh, It's uh, got the same writer as uh, Paddington two. And you can feel that Uh, it's very, Mm -hmm. this movie is so charming. Uh, It's about Mm -hmm. uh, the worst golfer in the world ever the worst golfer and uh it's played by mark rylance and he is perfect in this role i don't always love his chick kind of Hmm. the shy um mouse mouse uh kind of person that he usually plays but i really liked him for this role it was so charming and sally hawkins is great it's just a really heartwarming sweet family film uh that i think i just i think everybody will love it it's really good all right. I think I had heard the name, but I didn't know what it was about. It sounds definitely intriguing. Mark Rylis as a as a bad golfer. Could yeah, be fun. yeah. <laughs> it is really fun. So people should check it out. 
Um, what about you, Elise? Do you have something for us? Uh, well, we have been going, we've been seeing a certain series at the Tiff Lightbox Cinema, uh, but I was going to let Dave talk more about that because uh, I was going to mention to you, Conrado, that I did watch El Motivar's The Skin I Live In. Oh, wow. Yeah, because we talked so, about that on the Discord for your show. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, that is a really wild film. A Brazilian friend of mine uh, recommended his movies to me. So I've been starting to pick my way through them. And he really seems like the kind of auteur where the more you watch of his movies, the more they're all going to resonate with each other and with mm. you. Mm-hmm. And, um, that one, I really enjoyed the combination in it of completely wild and free melodrama storytelling uh, completely uninhibited with a surprisingly quiet tone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's got a pretty interesting, I don't want to spoil it, plot twist in the middle that reconfigures everything you've seen up to that point, And that was handled very well. And um, yeah, I'm definitely going to be digging more into his work after this. But you yeah. have to have a high, a high tolerance for boundary pushing subject matter. Yeah, that's for sure. Although this movie in particular, especially hearing you talk about it, strikes me now as a kind of a turning point for him. I think that the work that he's done since has been mostly much more subdued recently and much more, I don't know, maybe people will call it a little more prestige, a little more sentimental and more mature maybe even. So that kind of like boundary pushing subject matter has kind of receded a bit but his earlier work especially stuff from the 80s and and early 90s is even more so um, and skinny living does stand out as one of the most uh, boundary pushing ones as well <laughs> yeah and uh, actually my friend said something similar in that his he used to have wild subject matter plus wild tone and then yeah there's a kind of turning point where the tone becomes more subdued mm-hmm. and then maybe the subject matter starts catching up with that but yeah he's got a huge filmography and I'm going to be digging around in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say as you dig deeper into that. Um, how about you, Dave? Do you want to talk to us about what you've been watching at TIFF? Yeah, for sure. They've got the retrospective that has been making the rounds. Uh, I've seen, you know, I know last year it was showing up. I think it was last year in New York. But uh, the Kanuyo Tanaka, um, like her, all, all six of her films, she's Japan's first female director and of course one of the first female directors who really got a chance to work in a studio system at all you know there's Dorothy Arzner Mm. in Hollywood in the 30s and there's um, you know Jacqueline Audry in France around the same time as Tanaka and that's about it during that sort of you know, the first 20, 30 years of and sound. Ida Lupino at the same time. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, of course. I just, Ida Lupino, how could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so, and and we've seen four of the six now. We've, the, we've got the fifth one tomorrow night. They've all been really impressive so far. Probably Forever a Woman is the one that most people will isolate as the best, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's quite a quite a film we, we just did a daniel day lewis actor actor series mm-hmm. uh, on our podcast and this movie kind of reminded me of my left foot crossed with something like uh betty davis and dark victory but with its own special boundary pushing twist <laughs> yeah oh, uh, wow. and don't want to do spoilers but yeah, well, a- anyone that com- comes to it will know right off the bat. It's based on a autobiography uh, written the year before, you know, it was published the year before of a woman who died. She was just becoming a prominent poet and died of cancer and goes through all kinds of, you know, hellish turbulence during the last year of her life. And But finds a way to spiritually triumph that yeah. is unusual. Yeah. And... Uh, there was the cinema was soggy at the end of it. There were people mm-hmm. I have never heard crying like that or discussion of crying like that in the bathroom afterwards. So. It was oh, wow. Wild. And that movie actually, just to tie it back into late spring, it stars the woman who plays the divorcee best friend in late spring. Right. 
Oh, so. no kidding. Yeah. So um, the name of the movie again is Forever a Woman is what you said? Yeah, or The Eternal Breasts. It's also called okay. that. That All was right. the original name of the book, I think. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a much better title. I don't know why they translate it any other way. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a little bit of a puritanism with a title like that, I guess. For sure. Um, yeah. Um, well, that sounds very interesting. I'll, I'll sure be in the lookout for because I haven't heard very much about that director, which, you know, another sign of kind of like the sexism that still persists. Did you already mention, Dave, uh, her career as an actress? Oh, yeah. Well, she's a hugely popular actress, right? So she worked in all the, almost all of the important Mizuguchi films and everything. And she was like the big Mizuguchi star. Uh, unfortunately, he was the only director that did not get behind her decision to want to direct. Uh, uh, Ozu, Ozu you know, was gifted very... her a script. Uh, you know, Nimurusa as well was involved in helping her put together a crew and get deals and uh, see what she could do. And obviously she kind of took hold of it as the fifties went ahead and started to develop her own Mm. team. But yeah, she's, she's, she's a pretty amazing actress as well. So. And for the people listening, the name of the director is Kinuyo Tanaka. Um, Again, if you, people listening want to check it out or if you're in Toronto or somewhere where the retrospective is coming, and you want to catch some of these movies. I know that I will definitely be on the lookout if they ever make their way back to New York in any kind of way to the repertory theater. Um, as for me, the movie that I watched most recently was... Um, I watched the Wes Anderson movie, The Grand Budapest Hotel, for the first time since it came out. and Which I was surprised to realize that because I really loved it when it came out. I saw it three times, but then I hadn't seen it mm-hmm in the years since. Um, and, you know, Rachel knows that I am a big Wes Anderson fan and I watched this again and I I uh, loved it all over again and I had a great time. Um, and I don't know if I have too much to say about it other than it holds up pretty well, but I, I wanted to bring it up because I'm curious because I don't think I know how any of you three, including Rachel, my co-host, feels about this movie or about Wes Anderson in general. Rachel, you liked his animated movies a lot, but I don't know how you feel about this one. Yeah, I like this movie a lot. I certainly liked it better than Birdman, that's for sure. Oh. (laughs) Sure, yeah, we're bringing us back to the Oscar Wars of 2014. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that this movie works really well because it's not trying to be realistic. And for me, the, uh, the Wes Anderson films that have a little bit more realism don't work as well. Like I'm not mm. the biggest Rushmore fan. I know like shocking, but I don't know. I just, I found that movie. I don't know to be, I didn't like the way they treated the teacher and just, mm. it didn't work for me. But, uh, but I think that this, because there's sort of that layer of whimsy, uh, right. it, it mm. works better for me. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's even more amplified in the animated movies, which I think are probably yeah. your favorite of his, right? Yeah, that probably goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like this. Moonrise Kingdom is probably my favorite of his live action films. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I like all of them pretty much. So I don't know if I have too many interesting <laughs> things to say about it. But I also don't know, uh, Dave and Elise, how you feel about. I don't think I've heard you mention him before in your podcast, and I get the feeling that maybe you aren't the biggest fans. Uh, Dave likes some of his movies a lot. I am kind of in the indifferent category. I did like mm. Rushmore, but that's kind of because I have a Jason Schwartzman crush <laughs> occasionally. Uh, more more for the uh, TV show he did uh, with Ted Danson. Oh, yeah. Bored to death. I actually like that a lot. I know, I know that's not a popular opinion. It's kind of a really, really precious TV show, but I loved it. No, it is good. But we are going to be covering, we're going to go back to um, Royal Tannenbaums on the podcast because Dave, Dave wants me to take another look. Yeah, oh. that's my favorite one. I don't know. I don't think that that's a very uncommon Mm-hmm. opinion mm-hmm. i guess i'm one of those people right that was really on board with wes anderson i liked bottle rocket i liked rushmore i loved world tenenbaums and the life aquatic i was like no i don't like this very much <laughs> and i think that's the, the that's the divider right would you say yeah. that that's true like that the real wes anderson heads liked 
Life Aquatic and they'd say, no, because you didn't like it because you never got Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. You thought he was something else, right? Uh, that's what people mm. would tell me at the time anyway. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I it's not like I, I hate any of his movies. I've always enjoyed them when I see them. Mm-hmm. But I never got to the point of loving them as much as the Royal Tenenbaums again after that. And we mm-hmm. saw, at least, and I, we saw uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. That was like during the early days of our relationship. We went on a date to see I, it. All I remember is that it looked beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a lot of memorable sequences in it, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting movie. And yeah. yeah, I've never really felt like, oh, no, I... I, and yeah, Moonrise Kingdom 2 has a lot going for it, for sure. So, mm-hmm. I do think that there is definitely, I, I'm almost willing to say maybe kind of like a generational or, or historical uh, yeah. difference. I think the fact that I didn't know about him until some of his movies had already been out for a while, I, I think changes it. I think the kind of discovering him with Bottle Rocket or Rushmore and then seeing how he changes. I think a lot of people got disappointed a little bit with right. that. They were expecting something else. And I know a lot of people who feel that way. And then there's other people who I think came to it later on and then just had his body of work already kind of signaling where he was going to go that feel a little differently. Um, that might be something to explore further and, and see sure. if that's true. Um, but anyway... That brings us to the main topic of the episode, which is the movie Late Spring. This is uh, directed by Yasujiro Ozu, the you know one of the great uh, Japanese auteurs. Um, it's from 1949, and it stars. This is important. It stars um, Chishu Ryu. It plays a, a kind of like a old man. He's 56, which I guess it's, you know, life expectancy wasn't the same back then. And, and you know, now you say 56 and I don't really necessarily think an old person, but um, he's an older man and he has a younger unmarried daughter played by Setsuko Hara. And this is why I wanted to have you guys as uh, guests on the show, because like you were mentioning before, you've done a number of retrospectives uh, focused on actors on your um podcast including daniel day lewis and you're doing one on gene arthur now i think right it just started mm-hmm. yeah. um but one of the ones you did a couple of years ago was Setsuko Hara. so i thought that was a great opportunity to have you uh, guys come on on the show and maybe you can give us a bit of a overall view of what you think of her as an actress before we start getting into the movie proper um you know kind of like the takeaways from that great uh retrospective that you guys did Wow, we have a lot of thoughts about Sasuke Hara <laughs> as an actress. Um, what can we say? So she had a, a long career uh, beginning before the war in Japanese cinema and then started hooking up more with the very famous auteurs afterwards, um, including in addition to Ozu, uh, Naruza, and even did a film, uh, an uncharacteristic film, for both of them, with Kurosawa. Yeah, the only Kurosawa film that I can think of that really centers on a woman's experience. And it's great. It's absolutely yeah. great. Um, she had a sort of nickname in the Japanese press, the Eternal Virgin, that uh, mm. we may want to discuss <laughs> as we're talking about this film, although it's not, not quite true. She never exactly... She always plays someone who's either getting married or has been married in Ozu's films. And right. and we, in the limited amount of films we were able to see, which were only the ones uh, that were translated, that have English subtitles, sub, nah, mm. that have English subtitles, mm-hmm. um, we still saw her do roles that were radically different from that. So she could have gone in another direction. But after she hooks up with Ozu, a lot of her films become about exploring that that idea of this sort of perfect woman who has maybe a kind of ambivalent relationship with the idea of marriage and mm. is in some way um, some way beyond sexuality, but that again, that's kind of a cartoonish version of the reality of her roles. Mm-hmm. I think that vision definitely 
you can see that coming perhaps or, or rather you can see late spring being a big influence on that perception of her because her character in this movie the whole for the people listening who might not know the whole premise of the movie is that she is uh 27 like i said her dad is 56 and they live alone and they live together and they have a pretty pleasant life but kind of like it starts to become a question of like shouldn't she be married now maybe she should get married and she doesn't really want to but her uh dad and her extended family there's an i think it's an aunt that comes around um kind of like pushing for her to get married and that's kind of like the main narrative thrust of the movie and she's clearly very ambivalent about that idea so i think that vision sticks did you want to add anything dave about setsuko hero I think he did a nice job of encapsulating some of our our big ideas. You know, the combination of vivacity and serenity Hmm. is sort of unique to her. You know, I really can't think of anyone else that combines such a sense of life force and also such a sense of just stasis, right? Like she stands for, you know, freezing everything in place, but also just somehow so lively. Well, yeah, she even says in this movie at a crucial point, um, I couldn't be happier than I am this way. Uh, Getting married, changing my life couldn't add anything to uh, the perfection of how things are now. Is she always kind of a bubbly personality uh, in her movies or is this uh, more for this movie? That's a good point, because one of the things, because we saw a bunch of her Ozu movies before we watched any of her other movies, Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, and a lot of her reputation in the West is based on her persona in those Ozu movies. And she does not play... the. She doesn't do this kind of performance in any of her other movies, even when she's playing a similar type of character. This is something Hmm. she and Ozu cooked up. Oh, that's very interesting. But but in something like um, Tokyo Story, you see the bitterness behind the bubbliness. Right. Oh, yeah, well, the the classic sort of exchange is life is very disappointing, isn't it? And she just stares at the camera, stares you right in the eye and says, yes, it is. <laughs> With her smile yeah. intact. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the other kind of key image that I know because I've only seen her Ozu movies and, and even not even all of them. But uh, that image of her smiling towards the camera, it's kind of like the iconic thing that I think of when I think of her and, and all that stuff that she can say in so many different ways while still having that kind of like radiant smile and looking, mm. you know, happy, but maybe inside there's so much more going on. Um, Rachel, I am curious because uh, I don't know. Uh, first of all, I don't know what you thought of this movie, but I also don't know if, if what you think of Ozu and his movies or Setsuko Hara, if you if this is your first time watching any of them. Yeah, I have to admit, this is the first time that I've watched an Ozu movie. Um, so this is my was my introduction to his work. Uh, I wasn't familiar. I think I had heard of Tokyo Story that that was familiar with me, um, mm-hmm. and I I'd heard of him, but uh, I uh, I was not as familiar with uh, his work as I probably should have been. Um, so this was a really fun opportunity to get to to watch one of his films. Mm-hmm. As what far as the think? movie, yeah. As far as the movie, I I thought that it was cute. I, I kind of <laughs> maybe wanted like a little bit more heft, a little more like something uh, to hold on to for the movie. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I don't know how how much you knew about Ozu's uh, about his style of movies, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But definitely, you know. Um, Light plot is how I would describe it. Usually just very, at least the ones that I've seen, which are only a few uh, kind of domestic settings and uh, yeah, kind of like daily life uh, mishaps or, or goings on that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, or, or rather like on first glance, maybe don't seem that dramatic. But for example, this movie and really every movie of his that I've seen kind of very tranquil things are going on. doesn't seem to be a lot of drama. And then in the last couple of minutes or rather, you know, the last 20 minutes or so I, I start crying uncontrollably and I'm overwhelmed oh, yeah, yeah, with emotion. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I've only seen, I think four or five of his movies, including this one. And it's happened to me in every one. So I, I feel like it must be a, a consistent element there. <laughs> 
Um, one th- movie that it reminded me a lot of is an anime film called In This Corner of the World by uh, Suno Katabuchi. And uh, it's a very, again, a very simple movie about this girl who uh, gets, um, uh, she's in a, an arranged marriage in mm. uh, um, just before the, in the 1940s. And uh, she ends up in Hiroshima. Um, and uh, it was really good. I really thought it was a very moving, very simple movie. Like there's a whole scene where, She's just making rice in a specific way that would puff up the rice so that it could last for more meals. And they go through all the steps of just cooking rice. And Hmm. I know she's just very, reminded me of a very similar character because uh, she's also very positive and very sweet. Um, And uh, so if you, uh, if you haven't seen that, I think it's on Tubi. Um, It's a good one. Uh, Beautifully animated. Um, it kind of reminded me uh, of a. It gets darker, obviously, with the whole war elements, but it uh, reminded me a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some inspiration there from Uzu uh, on um, the director of that film. For sure, I am thinking of how to talk about this movie without. We <laughs> usually just spoil the movie, right, Rachel? We just talk about it as a whole, but yeah, I feel I mean, like it's not. What do you spoil? Well, I don't know. I was going to say, I think the ending of this movie yeah, did catch yeah, me a yeah, little yeah. bit by surprise. A, yeah. a, a particular revelation from the father uh, later on. To oh, what you're happened. right. Yeah. What will you say, uh, Elise? You, you're agreeing with me, right? That there's like a little bit of a, of a turning of the tables or, or maybe the well, rock pulls out. <laughs> Absolutely. Like the first time I saw this, this was actually my um, first Ozu. Uh, and I saw it at at TIFF, as usual. <laughs> and um, Dave actually didn't come with me for some reason that time. And uh, he hadn't seen it either. Anyway, I watched it. And yeah, there's just a like really huge gut punch. And how does at the end... Oh, sorry, cat troubles. <laughs> yeah, we have a, some cat issues here. <laughs> Okay, and uh, yeah, but how to talk about it without spoiling that. I guess what I'd say is that the movie seems to be about the daughter and the ambivalence that she's experiencing about marriage and about kind of transferring her primary affection from her father, this that she's retained into adulthood from childhood, transferring it onto someone else and not really understanding why everyone societally and why the narrative of the romantic comedy needs her to do that so much because she doesn't agree, right? But the narrative mm-hmm. needs her to and the society needs her to, right? And so you think that the movie is all about that. And then at the end, you realize that the movie is actually all about the father. Well, and I mean, you can make that- the argument that the father, what he does is 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 kind is for her own good because it's pushing her uh to to make this change you know that she's resistant Mm -hmm. to the change Uh, but she does like it's not like she dislikes this uh sadake it's not like she dislikes him she does like him she's she thinks that he's a lot nicer than she expected yeah I guess so. I mean, I don't know. The thing for for all of this for me is that everything that is going on, I'm taking with a huge grain of salt because I feel like, especially towards the end, after everything reveals itself and what the dad was doing, trying to, like Rachel was saying, trying to help his daughter, but also all the implications of it. I look back on all these moments where they were saying things about each other, about how they felt about her getting married. And I can't and I can tell if they were just saying it to be nice to the other person, if they were saying because mm-hmm. they wanted yep. to or if they really felt it. And and that's, I think, the thing that was so crushing for me towards the end of real, realizing this whole thing of like how pressured they were, uh, despite them having a perfectly fine relationship between the two of them, you know, um, that there was this societal but also oppression within them that wanted them to do right by the other person. And, and but mm-hmm. they weren't fully communicating, I guess. And yeah, and there's I Dave and I were talking on the podcast when we covered this movie about how there's a, there's a sort of turn of the screw um, ambiguity, and every time you watch the movie 
for me, it feels a little different where I land on this as to whether he, as the voice of society, has done the right thing or not, hmm. and therefore making his sacrifice worthwhile. Right. Yeah, because... and I guess... The th oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Dave. Well, the thing is, whether he, whether you ultimately decide he did the right thing or not, I guess the movie, it can be about that decision and the benefit that it will bring to her in the long run. And it still is not willing to look away from the cost of that, right? Mm. So any change from a perfect situation is going to feel wrenching. And even if you think, I, I just really love the way it sets this up, right? So the the husband, the new marriage that she's going into is probably going to be very happy in the long run. And that doesn't change the fact that this is still a tragedy because the relationship that we have been observing and the one that is outlined at the beginning of the film is irrevocably changed or gone at that point. Mm. Yeah, And one thing that Ozu will do as he goes along and he works variations on this, mm -hmm. the final film of his career, An Autumn Afternoon. Have you seen that one, Conrado? I haven't. That's one of the ones I haven't seen. Yeah, it's a really good one to watch soon after watching this one because mm -hmm. Ozu, I mean, my take on Ozu's career is he gets you know, this is as joyous as he's going to get, right? <laughs> this is, he's reached a kind of equilibrium in this film where the balance between life force and pessimism is exactly right, I think. That's why it's my favorite. But on the other hand, An Autumn Afternoon is an incredibly wrenching experience too. It's the same scenario. He is older, but he's the dad. And he's got this daughter, not played by uh, Satsuko Hara, but she's also very good, the actress. But the relationship is not nearly as equal there. Mm. And everyone is a lot more drunk. It's <laughs> it's just so much more depressed, the whole environment. And, and, oh, wow. and they're pretty drunk. The men are pretty drunk already in this movie. So they get more drunk as the movies go on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I did think that that uh, Noah, no perform the performance... That went on mm -hmm. so long. I couldn't believe how long it was. <laughs> Seven minutes, I think they said in the commentary. Yeah, it was really long. That was so, so <laughs> I don't know, maybe um, Dave or Lee, since you have more more history with this movie, I did, was wondering when that was happening. Obviously, it's a long extended sequences where they go to see the snow play. And part of what is happening there is that the woman that the dad says he will marry if if his daughter gets married right because the question is like if she if my daughter gets married i or rather the daughter says i can't get married because what would my dad do and the dad says well i can marry another woman and that woman is in the mm -hmm. audience and there's a little bit of like looking at her but it is such an extended sequence and we spend so much time with the no performance that i was wondering what do we make of that like why why is that in the movie such a long scene well first of all Every time I see that, it reminds me of I wish they'd do a no play in Toronto because if that's happened while I've lived here, I haven't found out about it because I actually really love the idea of no, maybe actually watching a whole performance, I would suffer. But I love the idea of it. Uh, you know, I've read a bit about it and stuff. And I love this uh, sequence that we see here in the film. But uh, but yeah, I also felt the length of it. I'm like, why is this going on and on? Um, I don't know, Dave, like after listening to the commentary, it was the Criterion commentary that you were listening to, right? Yeah. After listening to the commentary, I wondered if it was something like, like critics talk about Ozu's Zen sensibility. And maybe it's something like you, like a crucial moment for that for me is when they're at the retreat at the Zen temple or whatever it is toward the end. And that's after they have their really emotionally charged exchange where she says, I don't want to change anything. I want to stay with you. And he gives her the whole pitch, the whole <laughs> heteronormativity pitch, right? And, um, and then they're just lying there and she's staring at the window and you see the trees and you see this vase and he comes yeah. back to it twice. And I wonder if it's just some sort of reminder that a world exists outside of the heads of these characters 
And you, you get that at the end too, with the final image of nature, a reminder that as intense as this inner drama these people are experiencing is, that there is still a beautiful, strange, semi-ordered world of art and nature out there, you know, that this all takes place within. So there's a kind of serenity within the drama. I don't know, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, and there's also just the fact that it creates an incredible pressure cooker, right? Because she just, she sees this, she sees these exchanges going on between her dad and this other woman that she really resents and she wants to freak out mm. and the no play just goes on and on and won't <laughs> let her right she right <laughs> give the theater and she can't cry and act out in the way that she wants to and yeah and we, we you know i think he does need to make it an extended sequence so we can really feel that these pressures exerting themselves upon her mm-hmm. it's and like he... i think it would be like an opera scene in if it went on for 7 minutes an opera <laughs> like glances exchanged at an opera passions going on in an opera in a western right concert. yeah and hearing you describe it that way makes me think that definitely there is at least in the movies that i've seen ozu is really interested in the in the tension between you know, traditional Japanese society and more modern attitudes and, and or more Western attitudes, you know, after the war and that kind of stuff. So the idea of having this moment in which she's seeing the woman that her dad might marry and there is definitely a resentment, like Dave was saying, about the idea of remarrying seems to be something that she's really up against and seems to be something of a uh, looked down upon in society as well and then there's this very you know traditional japanese performance going on which is in itself uh what i know about no um it's a very codified performance right and it's very specific in the way the actors move and the singing happens and it's all very calculated just kind of like the rules in society that are kind of like mm-hmm. pushing them in certain directions so the entrapment that you're describing there as well of her not being able to scream and do something, you know, and similar to that kind of like reserve or like contained nature of the performance and the society that, or, you know, the, the things going on in the air that makes them behave in the way that they do. Um, compare that, for example, with the scene where she's riding the bicycle and she feels so free, kind of like just going in nature. I don't know. Well, and she realizes too that because the beginning when she hears about uh, the uh, Mr. Onaders, that she like laughs and thinks it's distasteful and disgusting. But then she mm-hmm. meets his wife and she's like, oh, she's actually nice. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, she has a character arc that you see her change and grow. Yeah, she does learn to accept a lot of things that she was adamantly against at the beginning and that is definitely true whether she's really doing the right thing at the end is still an open question but she's certainly a mm-hmm. less judgmental person than she was when mm-hmm. we meet her and that's obviously growth yeah. but then uh, I... also at the end uh, oh I was just going to add that uh, of course we find out oh wait no wait that spoils the whole thing <laughs> okay never uh, mind <laughs> go, go on Conrado <laughs> no I think it's fine I think it's we fine. were going to go in the same direction because I was going to say going off of what you were saying about the movie turning from her uh, being the center character to the dad at the end you you totally my perception changed and I thought that his end of the stick by the end was going to be much harsher than hers, right? She's so oh, against yeah. the marriage, but at the end you see just how desolated his life is going to be now. Uh, and that scene with the apple was absolutely crushing, even though it's just a very simple scene of a person peeling an apple. But, um, you know, that's the moment where I completely lost it again, because I had already been welled up with emotion by that point. Yeah, that that is the moment, all right. How? Okay, that's the magic of Ozu because how can you? That's what I thought the first time I saw that scene. Mm-hmm. Like, um, how can you do that with an apple? Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah, the moment that that peel fell on the table, I think it is, or on the floor, and the sound of that alone was like a bomb was going off. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> but then, of course, Chishiryu is an incredible performer as mm-hmm. well. One of the funniest things that we've experienced in our explorations of Ozu and the material on him on the Criterion channel, there was a documentary where they had a lot of interviews with uh, Chichiryu in the eighties or nineties, like, cause he was mm. pretty long lived. And 
he's the most unbelievably self-deprecating man you are ever going <laughs> he basically was saying oh well you know uh, ozu he he was interested in setsuko hara and they worked together on creating a character but everyone else he just said okay dummy do this do that <laughs> and he, he's just like you know i i have no talent i just did whatever he told me to do and it worked uh... But obviously, this is an incredibly talented man. Yeah, for sure. Um, and a very good ensemble as well, beyond the two main characters. Yeah. Um, and going off of that, I would also say that, at least my impression, you know, I've had, when I heard about this movie, I always heard how emotional it was and the drama of it all and, you know, sad, a sad ending and that kind of thing. But um, as it is the case with most Ozu movies that I've watched, there is a lot of light comedy throughout as well. And they're much more, um, you know, peppy and enjoyable than I would have expected going in. He's always described as this very austere, you know, transcendental <laughs> director with like static shots and, and, you know, not a lot of plot happening and that kind of stuff. But there is a lot of funny scenes, especially with those, uh, the aunt character and also mm -hmm. the the. Uh, school friend um, who we also meet who's uh, the the main character's uh, friend from high school who's also kind of very funny um, there's yeah. that scene when they're talking about how, what are we going to call the husband yeah. when they get married because his <laughs> name is so problematic because you know it sounds like he's a mountain bandit but we can't call him this because it sounds like he's a little teddy bear so it's, you know there's <laughs> stuff like that well and, and Conrado if you continue to explore um, Ozu's oeuvre you will find out that he loves a fart joke and even a masturbation joke. Yeah, I mean, I have seen uh, Good Morning, which is one of those yeah. fart yeah, movies, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is very funny as well. Uh, <laughs> and I think, Rachel, if there's a, a Ozu that you might enjoy the most, I think it might be Good Morning. It's a very fun family movie about a couple of kids who go on strike because they want to get a television. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> and he That's did a... begin as a comedy director, right? He was exclusively making comedies at first and transitioned into this more hybrid mode but he's always hilarious i think yes all right i think this is a good spot to get into our questions so um let's go around our first question is what makes this a criterion movie so rachel uh what do you think what it, why is this part of the criterion collection I think because Ozu is an important director, and from what I was reading, this basically started a whole genre of uh, Soshimini Ega, or home dramas, hmm. is what they were saying mm -hmm. on uh, online. So I think that, you know, anytime there's sort of a new uh, or landmark filmmaker, uh, I, I think uh, somebody who starts something new. I think uh, that's important to to have on the collection. Yeah, and and I from what I was reading, also this seems to be the beginning of that mode for for Ozu, um, which is the one that people like Dave was saying that we are most familiar with. Um, and I haven't seen any of his movies before this period, so you were saying that they were more comedic in style, and but this is definitely the kind of uh, style that we are most associated with him and he's more remembered for those domestic dramas with that you know a little bit of comedy a little bit of melodrama and very poignant endings um so i can totally see what you're saying rachel and i think i agree with that um how about you elise what do you think well i guess i just add that it's also the start of his very fruitful uh collaboration with satsuko hara oh yeah great point and you know she being a major post-war japanese actress uh and really shows what the two of them were able to do together. I don't think his work would be the same without having met her. And she herself uh, retired after Ozu's death. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Um, Dave, do you have anything else to add to this uh, conversation about why this is a Criterion movie? Yeah, I guess... Um, Criterion, I guess their mission, you know, is to gather together as much as possible something mm -hmm. resembling a canon an extended canon and ozu it's very interesting right because as the mid-20th century film scholarship milieu was coming together in the kaida cinema it's a really interesting fact that they just ignored ozu basically they didn't think he was important or they didn't know about him mm -hmm. they're writing a lot about mizuguchi and eventually about Kurosawa, but 
Ozu comes a bit later, but when the Criterion Collection was being assembled by the 80s and 90s, yeah, Ozu was really in the ascendant and people were really diving in. So I do think of him as a quintessential sort of person that would be brought into the collection at that point. Although this one, I think it was number 330 or something I was trying to look at when they (laughs) put it on the collection. That could have been rights issues too. Mm. Right, of course. it's not an early one for sure, which I I was surprised by. Mm -hmm. But Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think it's an important one to be in there. I think that's a good point because the one that, you know, when I was growing up getting into film, like Rachel mentioned before, the one that gets mentioned all the time was Tokyo Story, you know, and I know that Roger Ebert, who is obviously a very accessible film critic to people who are getting into film, he would mention Tokyo Story a lot and he would put in his best movies of all time lists and whatnot. Um, But I do feel there's a sense, maybe it's the bubble that I'm in online, but I feel like there's been a... Uh, shift towards late spring becoming mm-hmm. more of the, the movie that everyone talks about. Oh, this is the like my favorite Ozu. This is the one that I really that really <laughs> got to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also interesting, you know, and that might be reflected in those. I feel like Tokyo Story probably is one of the earlier entries in the collection, and this came much later. Um, so that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so our next question is. Where does this rank in the pretentiousness scale? Now, this, you know, every week we ask this question and every time it's like, oh, this is a tricky one. This is a tricky one. So, <laughs> uh, so what do you think, Rachel? Is this a tricky one? I think this is actually pretty high uh, okay. on the pretentiousness scale because of the pacing. Uh, and it doesn't really have a whole lot of plot. And I think that whenever you have that, it's hard to not feel it. it's on the more more art housey side of things um so i would give it an eight i think it's pretty high mm-hmm. yeah um okay that's interesting that's interesting i would say that I, I i sense what you're saying and i do agree that there is especially in the movies that i've seen from ozu um a a attempt at being pretentious in the sense of like wanting to say something kind of profound right what i do love about them though is that these kind of like very deep and profound feelings are couched in these very simple scenarios and very day-to-day um happenings that don't feel necessarily so huge and big right the lack of plot i think maybe like you're saying makes it a little less accessible to some people but i also think it makes it a little more approachable in terms of like bringing down the pretentiousness so for me it's a tricky one and i'm not really sure where i would land what do what do you uh what do our guests think about that uh well i would like to hide behind um <laughs> i happened to read the criterion.com uh, essay on this film before uh doing this recording and this was by michael atkinson and he claims that ozu is one of the handful he lists them all the handful of great cinematic masters that could never be accused of pretension. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> who are the other ones? Can yeah, you give us the list? <laughs> oh, well, there was Renoir, and I think I could make a case for that. Bresson, I'm having a problem making a case for that. Um, <laughs> okay. But I have no idea what uh, criteria he was using for that. <laughs> um, in, terms of, in terms of pacing, okay, so I'll say two things just to um, react to you guys. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of pacing, I feel like Ozu's slowness, like Chantal Ackerman's slowness, is so much his own thing, so much his own idiosyncratic thing. Like when I think of pretentious pacing in an art film, I think of somebody who's just kind of doing that because you think you need to do that in an art film. Mm. Um, but I feel like this is up there with um, idiosync- idiosyncratic slowness is up there, you know, in the top five, drier being another one. So. I don't know if I would call that pretentious, but if it is, I would counteract that with saying that Ozu is so self-conscious about using um, really basic narrative forms like let's get a woman married, uh, let's do some matchmaking, let's <laughs> let's set people up, let's see how she feels about that, let's have everybody talk about that. And that is such an unpretentious plot because it's been the most basic plot of drama and particularly comedy uh, since it started right that um i even feel like there's jane austen influence in ozu although you can see it better in some other movies and scripts um including the tanaka 
uh, movie that he wrote a script for. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of think the pretension and the unpretension are balancing each other out. So at most, it would be a five for me. <laughs> I think that's where I'm landing as well. A five or a six. How about you, Dave? Yeah, I don't think I'd go anywhere beyond that anyway. And it might be a two-pronged assessment here because if we're thinking about the audience he was making the films for, and definitely Ozu is one of these directors that was never exported. Everyone just figured, no, this is just for Japanese audiences. No one else cares about his movies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the general consensus about him while he was alive. It wasn't until after he died that he began getting festival screenings outside of Japan, as far as I know. So the people that would have been seeing it would have been very familiar with all of the events and the milieu that he's describing. And I doubt they would have seen it as pretentious. And Setsukahara was basically Japan's most beloved star. True. So probably a zero from a Japanese audience perspective, right? This was a (laughs) a crowd pleaser kind of movie. But Hmm. for someone coming outside of that context, for sure, there can be uh, some aspects of it that you just have to, that are either an acquired taste that's worth acquiring, I'd say, or just something that isn't going to be for everyone. So mm-hmm. maybe a five is a good point to put it at. That's interesting, actually, because that's a good point. Like when you recontextualize something, how does something become an art movie that wasn't an art movie in right. the culture that received it? Yeah. 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 That's an interesting point. And that's something that does come up every now and then when we do this pretentiousness scale stuff with older movies and foreign movies, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I still enjoyed it. It's just, um, I don't know. I just felt like it's more of those movies that you kind of have to work a little bit to enjoy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But that's good points. Let's, uh, okay, so let's move on to our to our final section, uh, which is the remake pitch, which um, <laughs> another section that every time it comes, it's always like, oh, it's a tricky one or like it's a, it's a weird one to make a remake of this movie. Um, but I'm sure that we have some ideas. Um, Rachel, do you want to start us off again? Well, I, I didn't have anything too creative this time, but I feel like if you were going to remake this movie, you definitely want to have Hirokazu Kurita direct it. I feel like he would be a perfect fit for this. If you look at Still, um, Still Walking and um, and uh, some of his other films, I feel like they have a very similar shoplifters, very similar um, uh, tone and pacing and feel and I don't know. That would just make the most sense to me. Yeah. And you do love Corita, right? I love Corita. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. I, I feel yeah. like he's not... I mean, all of his movies have very high scores and, and uh, very uh, very praised at cons and places like that. But I feel like he should be a more of a household name than he is. He's so great. Mm. His movies are almost always wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there is a similarity, you know, uh, between, or, or maybe there's an influence of Ozu in Korea. He, like you were saying, his movies, the ones that I've seen, definitely in the domestic environment. And, you know, the plot is like, you know, similarly concerns that are maybe not the most like, well, you know, sometimes there is a lot of drama and a lot of circumstance, but I think there is something about the 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 down to earthness of it that I that I see a connection. I would definitely be interesting, Rachel, if you end up watching more Ozu, what you think, and if you start to see more similarities about how you feel about th- th- those two directors yeah. um, in comparison. Um, I don't know what I would say for a remake, so I'm just going to be a bad host and throw it to our guests and put them on the spot um, to see. <laughs> but uh, you were saying that um, Autumn Afternoon, that later movie, and Ozu, of course, something that people talk about him a lot is that he repeats plots and he repeats the setups of his movies a, long, a lot of times. So it, could we call that a, a actual remake of Late Spring? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He remakes this a few times Um Another one would be, uh, oh, which, oh, which is it? Which is it? The early... Late autumn. Late autumn. Oh, I get all these season ones confused. I need, <laughs> I need day for this. Uh, late autumn where Setsuko Hara plays the mother. 
Yeah, she's the Chishu Ryu, basically, and her daughter is the one that they're trying to get married, but also they're trying oh. to get her married again, too. Right. That's oh, a wow. very Yeah, that's the one that's really, really self-conscious about uh, his matchmaking plots and gets really meta about that in like a Shakespeare way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also the one with the masturbation jokes. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm I'm totally on the spot here because I have no knowledge of any Japanese th- cinema post the 1960s, and uh, basically no knowledge of any contemporary Am- American <laughs> filmmaking other than maybe I watch half a dozen art movies per year. Um, <laughs> I had to think; I could only struggle to try to think of uh like an american remake dave did you come up with anything my idea i guess was sure if it was being made by hollywood around now let's say Mm -hmm. my idea was to translate it into today's culture it would be maybe more interesting to make it a roommate pairing that's perfect basically platonic roommates Maybe one of them is a little older or has already had some kind of transformative romance that ended. Maybe the partner died or something and they've settled into this incredible roommate relationship. And, you know, the Satsuko Hara character is confronted with this choice where, you know, people seem to think it's time. It's time for you to have your romance as well and doesn't really feel like that's necessary but the room the older roommate feels like they have to help it mm. happen i could see it maybe being cast with someone like uh short ronan or oh sure <laughs> yeah i mean i think she has i don't think anyone will ever be exactly like satsuko hara i think she's a pretty unique figure mm-hmm. but maybe that's the closest i could come come up with in terms of someone that's in the hollywood well, spotlight yeah. right now Oh, that's sorry. A, yeah, go go ahead. I was gonna say that that's a good choice because she's she might not be you know Satsukuhara like you're saying is very unique, but Saoirse Ronan is also feels kind of unique to me. You know, having just watched yeah. her in Grand Budapest Hotel the other night, um, mm-hmm. he, she does have a very specific vibe to her that no one else quite has, especially if they let her have her Irish accent. I think that makes yeah. her even more unique. <laughs> you know who I also mm-hmm. thought of that I think would be good for this kind of perky. Uh, role mm-hmm. uh, is um, Drew Barrymore. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, that. Uh, well, th- that makes me also think. What What I was going to say also is that the idea of remaking this uh, now, and and let alone in an American setting, uh, it's really challenging. That's why I think the like, rumored mm-hmm. idea is good because I don't know, Rachel. You watch a lot of more rom coms than I do. Obviously, you're the queen of rom coms. So, <laughs> do you feel like there's still this like idea that does it still work to do a movie about a woman who's like you know twenties? I mean, clearly not twenty seven. Maybe now it will be thirty seven and it hasn't gotten married. Do you think <laughs> that still works? I totally think it still works. I mean, if you look at the recent revival of Company on Broadway, got getting tons of of claim winning Tony awards and they gender swapped it so that it was a woman who's playing Bob, who is Bobby, who is, you know, 35 and unmarried. And mm-hmm. uh, it's the sole focus of the, of all of her friends, you know, giving her advice and, yeah. and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I think that plot still holds true. I mean, it's still, I think, uh, socially expected that yeah. women get, and particularly women get married. Right. Or like, I think there's a little bit of a, oh, how sad is it that this woman is not married at a certain age, right? Whereas, right, Mm -hmm. the company is a great example because that's originally the character is a man and that totally doesn't work anymore, right? A man who's 35 and unmarried, everyone's like, oh, of course, just another dude who's having (laughs) a great time probably, you know? Right. But with a woman, it it is different. Um, The last thing I was going to ask since, uh, uh, you know, since Elise was mentioning that she doesn't, watch that many contemporary movies was like if there if you could somehow travel back in time and, and have a classic Hollywood uh, actors and directors from the you know the 30s or 40s which is your your specialty on your podcast be able to remake this movie or try to do an American version of it do you have someone that you would choose for that okay well actually that's where my mind started going uh, for this segment uh, because 
the American connection I can make here whenever I watch Late Spring is to something like Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which was made into a studio era movie, but is more famous in its play version. However, Mm -hmm. a couple of actresses from the 1940s, um, they were in stage versions of that play. And they are the ones that I think of having as American actresses with the most Setsuko Hera-like qualities. Um, That would be Teresa Wright and Dorothy McGuire, both of whom we will in future be covering on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- those are the people I'd nominate to be her character, Dave, but what do you think about the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, who would play the Chishu Ryu character? Oh, I had a lot of trouble with that. I could not come up with anybody who had, like Frederick March plays Teresa Wright's father in Best Years of Our Lives, but does he have, I don't think he has Chishu Ryu uh, characteristics. No, you- he's pretty unique in his own right. What do you think about a director? What about like a well, Ronald King Vidor Coleman? would be Ronald Coleman. That's actually mm-hmm. that's excellent. Yeah, he he would have been good. Yeah, and and for the director, I mean, we do know that Ozu was absolutely completely obsessed with at least one King Vidor film, which mm. was The Stranger's Return, which is one of my very favorite films too. And King Vidor may be my favorite director if I had to pick one. So I would give him a crack at it for sure. And yeah, they could have made an interesting, and I I love the R-Town connection. I do feel like Satsukahara is such an R-Town heroine. I love R-Town. Can you talk a little bit more to that, to that connection? Are you thinking kind of the idea of marriage and then kind of looking back on it with melancholy eyes? Is that what's going on? That's that's absolutely what it is. The idea of marriage as this, uh, transition particularly in a girl's life um that's just absolutely momentous and how she doesn't she doesn't want to move forward right there's this ambivalence Mm. about moving forward into a new phase of her life and of course in our town that has the added weight of what happens to emily right Right. reflecting in the graveyard yeah (laughs) that's a great point yeah, and that and that ending also, yeah, very reflexive and very kind of like somber in a way that the beginning of the play doesn't maybe foreshadow it quite as much. Kind of like this movie, I would say. So that's a great connection that I hadn't thought about. Um, all right, um, is there anything else that we would like to say about this movie, about Ozu, about Setsukuhara before we wrap up? Um, Dave and Elise, do you have any final thoughts? They're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's all I could say. One of my very favorite films, and it was great to have a chance to talk about it with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like uh, just watch everything Ozu does from now on at this point, and it will all become more richly rewarding as you put all the connections between the movies together. And on our podcast schedule, we're actually going to be covering all of the earlier ones too eventually. We've got our plans scheduled to 2035. So <laughs> Yeah, very ambitious planning. Unlike the Criterion <laughs> project, which scrambles every time. What are we going to do next time? <laughs> well that's great too. You know, there are pluses and minuses to both ways of going. Of course, yeah. There's also the the ability to change plans last minute, um, of course. But mm-hmm. um, I was going to say also in, on your podcast, obviously you did this whole Satsuko Hire retrospective and those episodes are all up. So if anyone wants to catch up with her career and, and listen to those episodes, they're available as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, for my part, I would agree with what you guys are saying. Even though I haven't seen as many Ozu films, I have found all of them very rewarding. And to anyone who feels, you know, uh, adventurous enough into to look into that kind of, uh, you know, like we were saying, maybe uh, slow pace, but very emotional and, in my opinion, very delightful movies, that to give them a shot. And I know what you would say, Rachel, after your first experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm really grateful uh, that we had this podcast because it definitely pushed me to check out this movie and I think it was really uh, a fun uh, interesting look into uh, you know a new director for me and a a new um, type of films for a different culture which I always appreciate so yeah it was great 
Of course. All right. So with that in mind, Rachel, will you tell us, please, what are we going to do next uh, episode, which we have uh, planned very far ahead and we uh, <laughs> knew from the beginning? What is it, What is our next episode? So we are going to be talking about Richard Linklater's film Slacker. Uh, I have not seen this. This is a blind spot on my uh, on, on my Richard Linklater fandom. I really enjoy his movies for the most part. Uh, I think this might be the only one of his movies I have not seen. Uh, so I'm excited. This is, I think, his first movie that started it all. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I also haven't seen this movie, despite also being a, a big fan of Richard Linklater. And also very for the, you know, the keen uh, eared listeners will know that this will be the first time that we cover a second movie by a director that we have covered before. Richard Linklater is going to be our first two-timer so yeah. that might be uh exciting and momentous and we will talk more <laughs> about him uh next episode in the meantime uh dave and elise thank you so much for being on the podcast it was a great conversation and would you like to remind the audience listening where they can find uh your podcast and, and all of your stuff yeah you can definitely i mean the link for the podcast it's it's actually uh, doesn't really correspond to the name of our podcast anymore because we started as a time travel podcast. So we were covering all time travel films. So that's that's what the website is. But the, the podcast is called There's Sometimes a Buggy. It's timetravel.libsyn.com. So you can find us there or just find it on mm-hmm. podcast uh, podcatchers. Yeah, and the link will be in the description of the episode for anyone who wants to click on that. And and the subtitle is Irresponsible Opinions About Classic Film. I realized I didn't say that at the beginning when I was talking about classic film. Right, because we're not authorities. No. (laughs) (laughs) But you do make a great podcast, a lot of great movies and classic movies being covered. And right now, you like you were mentioning, you were doing your studios year-by-year series as well as a Gene Arthur uh, a tourist overview, uh, which should be very exciting. We covered one Gene Arthur yeah. movie in the past, The Talk of the Town, uh, which got me curious to see more because I feel I felt back then that she wasn't in it as much as I wanted. So, or maybe she wasn't the biggest impression. So, I'll be curious to watch along with that series, and yeah. you know, anyone else listening. I'm a big can... fan of her, so I'll definitely be tuning in. So, oh, oh Dave, Dave is the biggest fan, so uh, that should be good <laughs> listening for you. <laughs> Great. Uh, In the meantime, okay, Rachel, where can people find you? You can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all of our social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And also check out the Hallmarkies podcast. We have a lot of fun over there talking all things Hallmark and rom-com and holiday and Christmas in July is coming up. So that's going to be super fun. Fantastic. Mm. You can follow me on Twitter at CocoHitsNY. That's also my handle on Letterboxd if you are on that. And you can follow the podcast at CriterionPod on Twitter. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy listening to us, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us find more listeners. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for being here and having this great discussion. And see you around. Bye, everyone. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.